Woodstock 99 promoter John Scher, who we've always kind of referred to as the man in the tower, the the evil mayor of Woodstock 99. That was him briefly stopping the Red Hot Chili Peppers set to alert the crowd that the fires are not part of the show, (laughs) which is really funny because if it was part of the show, like... Like what band? What band would would be like? Oh, this is the part of the Red Hot Chili Peppers concert where they have a bunch of trash burning, right? Like, oh no, no, it's just part of the show. This <laughs> is the big surprise that they've been promising. This is it. This is the All Star Special. Yeah, this is the the thing. And you know that that quote. You know, we we played that quote way back at the start of the show. We might have. I I can't remember for sure, but we might have even dropped that in episode one. That's going mm-hmm. all the way back. Uh, yeah. years now, which again is funny because we, we really could have <laughs> fucking done this thing. Ago. We could have yeah. done this in a couple months if we really yeah. buckled down. But uh, oh, you know, it, it's all it's all worked out pretty good. I, I'd, I'd yeah. say you know we we, we yeah. appreciate the fans, the ones that have been there from when we started. We appreciate the fans that are just finding out about it now, and we even appreciate the people that listen to it and don't like it because uh, it still mm-hmm. gets our numbers up. But yeah. yeah, so that we felt that that Podcast was a, a 99. Yeah, exactly. Podcast 99. We felt that it was a great way to start the show. Uh, usually we mentioned that I'm Ryan Lichten joined by Parks Miller, but we really wanted to put you in Woodstock 99 riot mode because Rome is burning. But before we jump into that, let's just catch up really quick. How have you been, Parks? Uh, I'm I'm good, you know, all things considered. Uh, I'm you know, I uh, I don't know. Since the last time we talked, haven't done a lot different. You know, we're in this situation. Hey, hey, whatever. Um, I'm I'm watching, excited. Watching just, a good TV or anything? Um, you know, speak. I mean, I guess of like megalomaniacal uh, leader figures. I have been watching that show, Succession, and oh, yeah. um, you know, people throwing around around a lot of money in the wrong ways. I guess that can kind of tie in. So, uh, but it doesn't always leave me, leave me feeling the best, uh, with the end of each episode. No. Uh, because yeah. Because Everyone's terrible in it. Uh, so yeah. Oh my God. I, I think, I mean, I really wish that, uh, my girlfriend and I had kept a list of everything that we've watched since we weren't allowed to go anywhere because mm-hmm. I've watched so much shit uh, on top of, you know, finishing Woodstock stuff and, you know, diving into that. And we did find some new gems for you folks uh, on this episode. Things that, you know, because even we're still discovering new things about Woodstock 99 yeah. that make me wish we could go back uh, to, right. you know, some of the earlier episodes. But we can't. So we try and throw these things in when we can. I mean, you've, you found a gem, like, you know, 
hours before this episode that is incredible. So. Yeah, yeah, and, and we'll I'm, talk, I'm like, we'll talk about that. I'm trying to decide, and I will in the next couple of seconds if I'm gonna dump it before we uh, before we get into the the beef here or during the beef. Uh, I feel like mm-hmm. it, it might break it up. Uh, to, uh, that's what I'll do. I'll use it. I'll use it to soften the blow a little bit later in the episode. But no, I've been watching uh, Marrying Millions. If you haven't seen that, it's kind of it's kind of in the vein of like Ninety Day Fiance. It's like uh, you know, not okay. rich person dating someone that's super rich, mm, and it is okay. just so ungodly cringy and funny. I yeah. I can't take it. That that was a big one. And then uh, Netflix just came out with a new one, Trial by Media, I think it's called, and it's all oh, okay. about really really highly publicized trials. You know, trials that were on television and kind of you know, impacted the entire country and they're all really heavy and barely any of them. Yeah. Like leave you feeling good. Like mm-hmm. one, one is about, which is almost like a culture dump, but it's a little true crimey. Uh, but the guy that was on Jenny Jones, uh, for the secret crush episode. And he finds out that the guy, the person that had a secret crush on him was actually one of his guy friends. And he was so humiliated. He ended up killing him. Like that's crazy. Wow. Uh, there is the one like it's kind of like what Joker was loosely based on. The guy Bernard Getz, who uh, was a you know sub- a- apparently from what he was saying, you know, threatened uh, to, to about to be mugged on the subway in New York in nineteen like eighty four. It was like serious gnarly New York days, and he pulled a gun and he shot all four of them. He got off scot free basically, like things like that. It's just like. Out and like uh, the whole city was calling him a hero and shit. It's just so crazy. Um, oh, wow. So yeah, I mean, I've been yeah, keeping a busy. True crimey, but it sounds it sounds a little bit like a you know a precursor to uh, culture. Well, the Jenny there. Jones ones for sure. Not not not, yeah. not so much mm-hmm. any of the other other things. I mean, uh, sometimes and, and the yeah, culture folks, dump we, we might been, lead in death. We have been so. gearing up for culture dumps. It, it is yeah. coming. I don't want anyone that listens, you know, and that has listens to be, you know, listened this far to be surprised when when things turn over. We'll give you plenty more warning. But uh, yeah, we're going to be covering all sorts of topics. Each episode will be different uh, if it's not a multi-parter. So get ready for that. But let's jump in to what's happening after the Red Hot Chili Peppers. We're talking about eleven o'clock at night here. And the main thing to remember is that, yes, the Chili Peppers were paused momentarily so John Scher could come out and make that announcement that we heard. And then the fire trucks, you know, start to come in. But then everyone starts to really break down. You start. Right. Well, he makes a he makes like a really short announcement right after they're done, too, where he's basically like, OK, guys, the festival is over. Yeah, like go home. Yeah, <laughs> like pretty. It's like someone turning the, the lights on. At the, like they turned the lights on yeah. at a bar for like five hundred thousand yeah. people. It, yeah. Like that's essentially uh-huh. what they did. But also the important thing to keep in mind is a lot of these people on the grounds thought that there was going to be something else. There was always this surprise thing that was going to happen. We know that it was a Jimi Hendrix tribute that was essentially just video and kind of like a light show. And they were going to play Jimi Hendrix doing the, you know, the star spangled banner on the megatrons, you know, jumbotrons, what, what have you. And they did end up playing that, but no one cared because people were thinking it was going to be smashing pumpkins. Uh, We we just posted a video to our our Patreon that we found where it's people walking the grounds and you hear people talking about like Bruce Springsteen supposed to play. Pearl Mm -hmm. Jam was another big one that people thought were going to. And then there was nothing. And then on top of that, they canceled the rave. So we're just going to kind of go through this now by the numbers. Mm. This is a very fact. But that's really. Yes. But to say on that, I mean, that is a really short-sighted 
thing to happen. Whereas like, I, I remember hearing recently, I think like uh, Tyler, the creator, like he has like his own music festival and he had yes. like a special guest. Right. And it, um, everyone thought it was Frank ocean. Right. And then it was uh, Drake. Oh yeah. Everyone, I remember like, that. Booed Drake. Dude. I but remember here's thing, that. Here's the thing though. And imagine that backlash. And he's still with him still providing a secret, like, a-list mega successful artist yes. as the thing right so what if you're pro- imagine if you're promising something special and it's a video of Jimi hendrix and like a laser show like <laughs> th- you need to think about these it's things cruel. like it's you're setting yourself joke. up for like a really this is bad this is not a good setup to be like ooh, this special thing you know it's yeah, bad. no, it, it's a it's a setup. It's like a cruel joke is what it sounds like. But uh, again, folks, we're running through this now. We got some hard facts here. We have some numbers for you. And this is a two parter. We're not going to get through all this in this episode. So you'll have to stay tuned for the to be continued. But we're going to cover a lot of shit. So now the fires have spread across the entirety of the festival grounds. And after the realization that there would be no surprise mega act to end the festival, the hordes of fans began destroying anything they deemed property of Woodstock Ventures. The delayed towers that uh, were beginning to be broken down and they're collapsing across the grounds vendor tents particularly on the west stage side of the grounds are being torn down and looted because again these stages are over a mile apart from each other so you really have multiple sections it's almost like different counties uh if you will because it's like you have the west stage side you know the west stage and east stage and then of course the emerging artist hangar which was kind of in between ish but it's totally different. I mean, the things that are happening over on the West Stage side, you don't know that that's happening over on the East Stage side. Mm-hmm. Uh, the amount of people in attendance, it's up for debate. While ticket sales will tell you that it was anywhere from 150000 to 200000 several media reports estimate that the actual occupancy was closer to 500000 We like to say it's right around three fifty four hundred. Uh, Woodstock has a long tradition of being a free concert, which was originally implemented in 1969, but also carried into 1994. It was 99, though, when the idea for a wall was developed. And while John Scher, the one of the main promoters, envisioned that the wall was a way to keep gate crashers out and, you know, ensure their money to be made, you know, and also he, he makes a he makes a good point about uh Another reason why they wanted to ensure that no one could get in was so that there was enough stuff there for everyone that did pay. Uh, But Lang envisioned the wall as an opportunity to make a giant mural symbolizing the Woodstock spirit, which, of course, is just a way for him to jerk himself off because he's the creator of Woodstock. And we actually found... Yeah, yeah, this is huge now. This was was like a thing where I had to, like, call Parks when I found this Mm -hmm. out. So we found another video, if you guys remember correctly... MTV interviewed every act that played at Woodstock 99. They, you know, they hired local radio DJs that were cool from all different cities to come and fill in for these interview spots because there were so many bands that needed to get interviewed. Well, the promoters of Woodstock 99 also did one of those MTV interviews. And it's very interesting and it kind of makes me mad at ourselves because we've always been telling the story as it's Michael Lang and John Cher. But we found out that there was a third head of the Hydra. And it's Aussie mm-hmm. Kilkenny. And yes. uh, we, we, I want to hear this this little clip of uh, Cher talking about the wall and, and what they learned from 94 really quick. Uh, then we're going to get into the, the third head here. So what did you learn from 94? A couple of big ones. 
Well, we learned we learned a lot of things. I mean, we we learned that we needed to figure out a way to be able to secure the venue, not just from a commercial perspective, but uh, the people who pay to see this event mm-hmm. um, are entitled to get the goods and services that they paid for. Right. And uh, when it becomes a free concert and it's overrun by um, tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, of people who didn't pay. It's, it's an unfair bargain, and we like to keep our bargain fair. So the concept of putting a Woodstock wall up uh, was born. It was born by uh, observing how some other people did different kinds of events, and then uh, Michael came up with this wonderful idea to make it into not only a security wall, but a great art wall, mm-hmm. which is pretty amazing. So as, as the kids come, and they, they look around, and they see, and they're ready to report back to their friends right. back home of whether this is a, a pretty place cool. they can Come get on in or up. not. Yeah. yeah, they're looking in there, big smile on their face and right. say, this is cool. So the wall is not to keep people out, but for the security of those within. It's both. That's it's pretty both. good. Yep. <laughs> All, right. All right. So they, <laughs> it's like they basically just learned like, oh, yeah, we need to run this better is what it sounds mm-hmm. like, you know, right. and, and the whole thing with the wall. But then early, I think it, it might be earlier in, in the clip, you found a th- a, a Lang talks about uh, a kind of a logistical thing, right? Right, right. Yeah, I did. But I do want to just make a comment on the clip we just heard. Um, one thing I like is where uh, so Cher is doing this kind of explanation about the wall and how I mean, he's saying like the people that like need, you know, the people that paid, they need to get their stuff. And then so the interviewer is sort of trying to spin it like. So it's not really about keeping people out, but it's like keeping people in. It's kind of like the interviewer is sort of trying to like throw him a bone. And he and Cher is kind of like, yeah, that's right. Yeah, 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 yeah. But it's like, <laughs> yeah, see? we're going to keep it, people in. No, but it's it's about it's like about like, yeah, it doesn't it's about keeping people out. Um, but yeah, I also I love this uh, video, uh, but they earlier they are talking about. So they're kind of because I think this is on Saturday, if I'm not mistaken, I think you can hear a Lannis I, I didn't, Morissette. I didn't, I didn't catch the. I didn't catch the date. Uh, that, that I, I, well, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure you can hear Alanis Morissette performing in the background. So that would be like you know halfway through Saturday, and so th- at this point, like Limp Bizkit hasn't even played, right? So nothing has like really hit the fan yet. So like this is like a pretty fucking big deal because Limp, there hasn't even been the Limp Bizkit incident. There hasn't been like any of the Sunday shit. So like these guys are like, they're like chiefing, like they got grins, man. Like they are like, at this point, shit is going great. Like overall, obviously uh, here at podcast, and I, we've, you know, noticed how things are starting to unravel, but from like this bigger picture, like this shit is like a huge success. And I mean, it's funny because they're even uh, like, Aussie Kilkenny is like slap. He's just like slumped back. Like they all, like even their postures, like yeah, man. They like look they just on this so couch, relaxed. Like, did it? Yeah, they, they're very relaxed. And so it's kind of this fascinating thing of the interviewer. It's kind of like when you're calling it. It's like you know when those videos of people when they like think they won the race and they like put their arms oh, up too fuck. soon and then someone like <laughs> runs in in front of them and steals it. It's like. There's because the interviewer is just like, so like, how do you feel? You did it. You guys did it. It's such a big success. And so he's like, you know, what do you what did you do? Like, how did you do it and make it better than 94? And he mentions like Glastonbury, um, which I mean, obviously, if we look at it now, like Glastonbury is like a much more successful festival. It's major done every freaking year. Um, it's like, I mean, it's been going on longer and more regularly. But anyway, uh, 
uh, Lang kind of scoffs at that, and he's like, he's like, this is Woodstock. Yeah, yeah. You know, there's no other. There's yeah, no other yeah, festival he's like, he's like, yeah, like I went, Woodstock. I, I went there. Yeah, this is yeah. yeah. And you know what? Right. It's 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 an omen. It's like uh, it's mm-hmm. a pre- it's premonition right there, and not in the right. way that that he wants. But it's like, yeah, you're right, dude. Like you think right. you're gonna get right. away scot free this time? Bullshit. It's they, coming. They say a lot of things of just, and we might have to like include another clip just because like there's they say so many things that are just about to literally bite them in the ass, like. 24 to 36 hours later it's ridiculous i i just i just had an idea for for another exclusive patreon uh episode Mm -hmm. that that we can make available on patreon.com slash culture dumps where we take that video and everything that they say that is going good about woodstock we we give them the reason why it wasn't uh at that's really good yeah that's really good but i do is even if this is early day two or even if it's day one, the toilet situation and the plumbing situation is fucked. Right. And and there's the, the yes. mud and the the human sewage is starting to overfill by this time for sure. Mm-hmm. And right. you found that that clip of them yeah. literally uh, praising that brings exactly that. that's the that's the clip I did want to play. Um, so this is uh, the interviewer is asking him about the infrastructure and his decision-making. And this is Lang uh, explaining his thought process for how to provide infrastructure for a festival of, you know, over 200,000 people. So let's hear yeah, that. Something he obviously has plenty of experience doing successfully. Uh, yeah. <laughs> not. Mm-hmm. I can tell you how we figured it out the first time. Okay. <laughs> I send people out to bus stations and train stations and public arenas and time people going to the bathroom and multiplied it by the number of people we thought were going to come. Really? Yeah. You never told us that much. Like, we, we were never that secret. Very That's scientific. not a secret you should ever share with us until this moment. So I just, I love this. Like, first off, I mean, he's just saying, like, I just watched. I, I went to the bath. I just, like, stood outside of a bathroom and, like, watched people. I mean, <laughs> Everyone's first like, off, it's a little that guy. Like, he's just it's been- a little creepy. I mean, I tried to bring that up uh, to a friend. They They didn't think it was that creepy. But it certainly does not seem like the most professional way to do things. And even Kilkenny agrees. He goes, uh, I don't think you should be sharing that information uh, to be just like, <laughs> like you just go to a concert one day, you hang around the bathroom. And like, I really wish that like Lang had like just like a piece of paper, you know, like a notebook paper. Yeah. And he has a column on it. And, and like one one side says P. And you have like a sense And the other side says, says poo. And he's yeah. just kind of like. <laughs> All right, here's a P guy, and then he has the, he's got two stopwatches, one for the P, one for the poo, and then he kind of <laughs> makes a bunch of numbers down. Like, how do you? And then you're like, well, that's it. Like, and then you take the average. This is the average amount of time it takes someone to take a shit, and this is the average P time. And let's yeah, go. Yeah, this is how like, much. Here's and then festi- like, does it, like, does he go in though? And then like, like he'll be okay at I two o'clock. No. It was like this. He like has a little marker. He reaches in and puts a little d- dash, and then like comes back at four. He's like, okay, it's like six inches above the dash. I just, yeah, I really want to know like the exact process of that. But, and then this is a good transition into Kilkenny because Kilkenny obviously thinks this is not something you should be saying. There's many reasons why. And uh, that's probably because Kilkenny knows a thing or two about maybe the business savvy or maybe like what you shouldn't be revealing to the public and because that, uh, that you was have a blog about him. That, He's that, a bit of a shady guy that we didn't even know he existed. Uh, so yeah, yeah so so yeah. under the radar. But here's the thing, though. Uh, 
again, for, for you folks that, that subscribe to our Patreon, we have an episode where I interviewed my uncle. It's like our Christmas special. Or it's part one of my, my family Christmas special. And he's an, an environmental scientist that deals in hazardous waste removal. And he, I showed him all the Woodstock stuff, and he was very familiar with Griffiths Air Force Base uh, as far as it being a toxic waste dump. And, and, and he was able to tell us the kind of chemicals that were in there and all that kind of stuff. But also, he was able to fairly easily, just in his mind, like really quick, kind of give me a rough number of the amount of toilets that they should have had for the amount of people that were there for the duration. Like, like that's like what he does. He's like, Oh yeah, no, you like, and he just like did the math in his head. Uh, Mm -hmm. you know, but another thing that happened though, is even the ones that were full when, when it came time to empty them, because on the mystery tape, we do see footage of some of the porta potties being emptied. There was so much mud and stuff in front of them that they couldn't really drive trucks in because they'd get stuck. So they had to bring in like pickup trucks, basically full of dirt and dump fresh dirt over the mud so they could get the emptiers. And eventually they just gave up is what happened. But yeah, no, he could have just like hired a person whose job it is to figure out how many toilets you have for a bunch of people that are drinking beer and eating hot dogs all day. Right. And like, honestly, he probably like someone probably did do that maybe or something like it almost feels like he just I don't know there's just it's there's something about it's like the ego of, of Lang or just like I just it's just that easy yeah I'm so, the yeah but like guy, five here you know he, he's like playing it like it's roller coaster tycoon where he's just like yeah you, you put some <laughs> yeah. bathrooms over here you put some bathrooms over yeah. here maybe some fucking bong cellar right here <laughs> yeah, I used and then, to play uh, that game Limb Biscuit oh yeah. my god so, right, and then there's, but then there's fires everywhere, and then there's the, the people <laughs> yeah, with the pukey faces everywhere. Yeah, well, because then, then his like older brother, fails. like the mean older brother, gets on the keyboard when the kids like in the when Lang's in the bathroom and starts like you know making all the roller coasters backwards and shit and like right. destroying it. Make but it also, open everyone dies. There is a huge overlaying factor now that we realized and it's this third promoter Aussie Kilkenny and he's yeah. he's from Europe he, he's a he's a huge European music bigwig and he was probably more so than Lang or Cher responsible for some of the corner cutting that happened financially. And mm-hmm. I'll tell you why. So he's mostly known for his work managing and being the accountant for huge music at music acts like U2 and Oasis. Those are, those would be the biggest, I mean, giant top selling bands, arguably some of the biggest to have ever existed. And he's in charge of their money. Uh, he has seen mm-hmm. major success in his life, but he's also been at the center of controversy in the early nineties. Kilkenny was the financial advisor for, U2 and under his guidance they made a 22 million pound investment into a company called Leisure Corp that was planning on opening family recreation centers based around bowling and Quasar, a new exciting laser gun game now known as Laser Tag. Due to a change in Irish law though, the company was not able to open up a chain like they originally envisioned, so they brought it to Germany and invested 8 million pounds into opening these centers in Germany. But due to Germany's ban on war games and toy guns, the plan folded. So U2 pulled out of the investment. They lost enough money already, so they pulled it out. Kilkenny stayed on, though, because it turned out he was the non-executive director of Leisure Corp. And so he ended up selling the rights to Quasar to an American company known now as Qzar. That yeah. is a culture dump that the yeah. manager of U2 mishandled their funds in trying to start 
cues are. Uh, the whole thing left bad blood between the band and their advisor to this day. U2's team has nothing positive to say about Ozzy. And as recently as 2010, the band's manager told a representative of Kilkenny's newest client, or not newest now, but at the time newest, Susan Boyle, one of my favorites, uh, to be weary of his business tactics. So he has a past of doing things that might not necessarily be the most uh, ethical we should say, right. or maybe, or maybe just, maybe just not the smartest. Uh, either way, um, he would be someone that you that I could see them trusting handling the funds. I mean, if you're an accountant for bands that can literally invest twenty two million dollars into laser tag, uh, you should be able to handle, you know, enough money to throw the biggest music festival that has ever happened. But also, if you're the type that is having these bands invest money into a company that you're kind of in charge of. And then it folds. Uh, maybe mm -hmm. you're not the best, but right. either and, way that's, well, he's also just great because like, there's no, I mean, Lang has a, you know, a Wikipedia article about him, but Kilkenny doesn't. So all he has is just like, if you search him, you just find it's these true. Like, sketchy articles. And I love it because a lot of these articles, I mean, they're like dated from the nineties and they're either um, like, like the Irish Times, yeah, or like, like YouTube like Irish fan pages, or like exactly, dude. That's what I <laughs> so found. Like, you found the same shit I did. Like, yeah, yeah. So it's like this guy, like a, a hardcore YouTube fan, like he's in their crosshairs, you know? Yeah. Because like I want to imagine that he is the one that convinced them to make that giant lemon that they like got really roasted for in the nineties. They like had like this huge lemon apparatus thing. And it was kind of like their spinal tap moment. Cause it like wouldn't open properly oh sometimes. My God. No, I don't remember. I did. Well, it's almost it, like it would match up in the timeline that it was, he was their advisor, financial advisor during then. So like, remember when uh, everyone had to have their album like on their iPod? Yeah, their, I, like, I do. You, I, couldn't, you couldn't get rid of the goddamn you, thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, that, they, that, I mean, they have a lot of, funny stuff with apple there's a performance of youtube playing at like this like apple like ceo tech convention thing and it's really really goofy too oh that sounds amazing um, um, but that's diverging for sure yeah uh, but that that's the third promoter so we, we found that out um but back to the band again we'll, we'll, we'll be covering that more there's going to be recap episodes and things like that but back to the meat from our understanding of the vendor villages, most of the West Village was official Woodstock merch. So that's your Woodstock 99 t-shirts with the lineup on it, things like that, posters, lanyards, dog tags, water bottles, keychains, stickers, all that stuff. But it's all the Woodstock stuff as well as the merch from the bands that we're playing. So you'll see CD shops and t-shirts for the bands, things like that. Whereas on the East stage, it was more of the independent vendors like people that would travel to all the different festivals and sell their wares, glass pipes, clothing, mm -hmm. Hemp, jewelry, you know, there's body painting there. Uh, and, uh, you know, if, as we heard, the body paint guys were also selling uh, disposable cameras, <laughs> which is right, wild. Right. So, yeah, they were able to get a little uh, suspect. Yeah, but that's yeah. all that's all more East stage stuff. So the the majority of violent acts that, that were reported, as, as they were called, were not directed towards the people or the staff, but rather the property. Uh, as the fires that were fueled by garbage, which there was no shortage of, uh, they began to pop up all over the grounds, and the rioters also began attacking the storage trailers, the offices, the vehicles, media equipment, vans, anything scattered throughout the grounds that was property that they felt was belong, you know, that belonged to Woodstock. Anything that represented 
the money mm-hmm. that they were losing, like whatever they could see it going into. And these trailers that they were setting on fire, I mean, they exploded. The refrigerated trailers, the CO2 tanks in them, literally exploded. And right. there was, there was explosions that, happening in, in rows and rows yeah. of these. And that was the part of that that brand new video you found. It's like 30-minute clip of these kids i mean i guess they're like reporters i mean they, they have like these like kind of nice looking microphones i think they have like like press lanyard things we could we could probably get into them that's a whole nother like alley to like find these kids because they also seem like they're like really drunk um yeah again I, running around with yeah. cameras um but they captured some amazing footage and ryan shared the video with me and they actually they are like filming the fire and it's i mean this is like kind of like movie like it's like blair witch style where they're filming they're not on the explosion but you hear this explosion and then the camera whips around and then you see like those like the movie style like the flames when they're just like like curling out like billowing it's it's nuts and then another explosion happens right and then like the same thing it's it's pretty wild no yeah it's bedlam at this point and people are starting to shake the the tents and all that and as we heard from our last survivors that all worked in the vendor village but what a lot of the vendors were doing were just closing the flaps because they were just in tents you know some of them stayed open Mm -hmm. though and again this the venue was so large that in some places it was still business as usual you know some people were still walking around doing stuff you know getting mm-hmm. you know getting a beer or getting getting food and then way over yonder there'd be fires popping up a lot of the fires uh, mostly were centered around the east stage because that's where the chili peppers played that's where the candles were being handed out and, and i believe i just read uh that they were handing out matchbooks as well so you'd be able to light mm. the candle of course <laughs> which i was yeah. i was thinking i was like how could they hand out all these candles just expecting everyone to have like a lighter it would make sense right. that they handed out matches too fucking dumb uh, well you take you take like one or two to light the candle and you've got a whole book to like light, light a delay tower trash yeah. well I have yeah. some some hard facts here because we do have all these newspapers that I, I was going through uh, from the Rome Sentinel newspapers that came out all about Woodstock '99, as well as this amazing press book that we just cracked open, which could have mm-hmm. changed the entire show had we had used it as a guide uh, from the start. Not necessarily, but uh, we, you know, we still would have talked a lot of shit. But we, it probably would have been more boring actually. But anyways, there's a lot of hard facts in there. And so there was a microwave truck, which is basically a satellite van that newscasters use to do live broadcasting that was owned by WUTR-TV, a Utica, New York station. It was destroyed, costing the station upwards of $25,000. Rioters had taken a 50-gallon drum and smashed the van with it repeatedly until it was completely useless. Another news truck owned by WHEC-TV from Rochester, New York, suffered approximately $15,000 worth of damage from people smashing it and trying to tip. Uh, this is happening all over. These are just the two mm-hmm. that I knew of. Those were local stations. That was a local paper that reported that. But I mean, the, like the MTV MTV yeah. stuff was was definitely one of the main targets as far as the media goes. If when you hear our intro to the show, you can hear a woman saying uh, there was you know we're getting airlifted out here. There, you know, it's no longer safe here or whatever she says. I can't even remember right. what, what she says but, in our like own half, intro. Half of the quotes from the, the intro clip are, are like happening now con- concentrated in this moment. Yeah. yeah it, in these, pre- in these kill- clips we have, 
Yeah, so she she was an MTV uh, reporter, and and so it's like they had it really the worst, and they had full sets built, so people were really attacking that stuff. Uh, a Mercedes Benz that was stolen earlier in the day that was seen driving across the grounds had been overturned and set on fire. Peace Patrol members mm-hmm. reportedly tried to stop the rioters from destroying it, but they were ordered to abandon their post for their own safety. We talked about that on our episode mm-hmm. where we uh, interviewed Mike Scriber, the photographer for Spin Magazine at the time, and then we reviewed the spin magazine article because it was the most sensational one way more so than rolling stones rolling stone had kind of like a cooler smirky way of viewing it you know whereas Mm -hmm. spin was like they were it's like apocalypse now reporting you know it's like war reporting right right and they had some of the radio transcriptions and they one of the radio things that they had was a peace patrol guy who was at that car and he was trying to shoo everyone away. And they literally tell him, just get the fuck out of there, dude. Like, what are you doing? (laughs) Like, get the fuck out of there. And, uh, you know, while the focus of the riots was mostly directed at the property, there were few reports of people chasing down and throwing things at the Peace Patrol, media, and anyone wearing any of the several different kinds of Woodstock 99 staff t-shirts. There was a ton of those. We have a bunch in our collection, and we're barely scratching the surface. So if you looked like you worked at Woodstock, people are going to you know, start throwing mud at you, trash, oh, get them, whatever, tear your shirt off. There's, yeah. This the us versus them mentality is like really starting to like creep out, you know? Yeah. And I mean, again, it's not like again, I mean, we you know, there wasn't really reports of like a, you know, death in that, but it's still just like it just seems so chaotic and fr- and frightening, you know? In, no, absolutely. I mean, even if you even if just to be a bystander to be like, "Well, what what is going to make, you know, what am I going to do that could make me a target all of a sudden?" You know, right. And people were it, really scared. You know, I mean, we if, if you listen to the last episode, the survivor stories, I mean, each of them saw insane stuff. Their golf, you know, they get off their golf cart to go handle something. And they come back. The golf cart's gone. <laughs> you know, they, yeah. you know, the, there's there's kids crying. You know, people are really, really scared. People are talking about tipping over right. full trailers, ripping open ATMs. Um, right. So, but there's also at the same time, the people that are doing this are like gleeful and like ecstatic, you right. know, and uh, that's the thing we found in this video, which I mean, we probably just have to, that could be its own Patreon or something is just ex- trying to figure out who these kids were in this, these like kid reporters. Cause I mean, they're definitely not from like a, a news station that we are aware of, but uh, they interview some people who are kind of like, we did it, you know, we did it. Like they're really proud of yeah, like, you we knocked I mean, this thing with this tower over and like, they're like they're really happy they're like you know it was it's kind of this message gets really boiled down and you're kind of like what what exactly is the point again i know that there was like we're gonna play we're gonna play a clip from it i I, i'm not even sure which one we're we're gonna we're gonna pick it out later but this is just this great clip taken by these basically drunken reporters my theory is that they had done their due diligence all day they you know, chili peppers was done. So they, they started kind of parting a little bit and then the real story started. So they had to get back on the camera and the mic and they were like already <laughs> yeah. fucked up and they're like, fuck, fuck, you know, that's <laughs> like, a good theory. Yeah. 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 That, that's what yeah. I think. But, but yeah, this is just a little yeah. clip of them. And then also at the end of this episode, we're going to let some sound play of just the background of the riot. And you're going to hear the hooping and hollering. You'll hear drum stock. You'll hear the fires and we'll just let that go for a little bit. That'll be at the end. But these are the drunken cool. reporters during the riots. <laughs> Absolute chaos is like the apocalypse. We got everything's going down. We got the firefighters pointing and trying to fight that. We got the troopers going in trying to clear out all these people. This is absolutely insane. This is absolute mayhem breaking out as we speak. 
right, you can cut there. So we have the employees taking off their uniforms now. So now it's looking like less and less people are staffed there. So if you're if you need help or anything, if you're an attendee, you're really on your own at this point. Uh, people were trying to do it what they could for you, but it was getting to the point where you had to leave. You had to be evacuated because now you're seeing the state troopers start coming in along with the fire trucks. You, you, you know, when you hear the the videos of the riots like in the background of all the riot footage, you can just hear so much happening because you hear drum stock going on. You hear the sirens, God, you hear yeah. the people cheering. It's so much happening. Uh, but and get, getting the back drum to stock is so the drum stock is just, it's so insane because it's been happening this whole time and it's still happening. Yes. And, and we can, we found these videos where it's still happening. And I mean, like, I got it. Not the. I mean, I'm gonna maybe pass some judgment here. Like, what kind of like deranged person has just been playing the drums this whole time? Like, it's. It would be I great. I, I I say it, it all the time. This extra level. Yeah. No. It's a total. And <sighs> that's what the the last survivors were talking about. They were saying like, yeah, you could hear it the entire time. And now, just for reference. The drum stock, like the the main base of it, there was little splinter factions, you know, uh, <laughs> scattered throughout. But the main hive, the, the the mothership of drum stock, was right by the rave, like the emerging artist tent area, kind of yeah. kind of like right there. And and I my theory as to why they chose that place is because during the pre-show, the headlining act, George Clinton, this was on Thursday night before the Friday mm -hmm. that was officially started it. That was like the main thing. So I feel like it first started there because everyone was congregating there. And then it kind of just oh, like yeah. grew and grew and grew. But that area, the, the, <laughs> the emerging artist hangar, a.k.a. The, the rave tent, a.k.a. the sixth element, as we found out it was called, that was also right where the offices were located. Because again, folks, this is on a military base, so there are you know mil there are housing units on site. There are office buildings on site. So the offices that the vendors were kind of assigned to was connected to the back side of the rave tent. There is yeah. footage that I saw. I shit you not that one of our survivors showed us, and he told stories about this uh, on the show, and I likened it to a real life zombie movie. The employees are literally barricading themselves into the office using wooden planks, nailing it to the door frame, just like you'd see in Night of the Living Dead. And outside, right. you just hear like gong, 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 and like people like screaming and like laughing and hooping and hollering. Yeah. And it's just out of goddamn control. And as the fires yeah, raged on and the looting uh, continued, things began to really escalate because, again, the CO2 tanks attached to the large tractor trailers were set ablaze, and that caused these giant explosions, which you see in all of the media coverage. You all, they're always going to show you the burning trucks. It kind of solidified everything because starting a trash fire, one thing. Giant explosions, totally yeah. different thing. That's, that's crazy. I mean, what? Those things are what? They're like 60 feet long. That's like 60 feet long length of fire you know like they're so big it's just like uh it, i don't know it's i think that like the things that and especially with like drum just drum stock again where it's like that it probably was like haha -ha, and it's like okay this is annoying and then like maybe at some point you <laughs> tune it out and you're just like you don't even notice it and then it's been there and it, it comes back and now it's like terrifying yeah now it's literally like this like primal like war drum and Maybe because they they're off beat, the offbeat thing the fact that no one ever like can agree on like a beat and it's never once like funky 
or anything like resembling like coordinated it just i think that makes it scarier that like yeah. no one cares to be on beat they just it sounds want like to a make... monster dragging a bunch of chains yeah it, yeah. It's, it's, <laughs> yeah it's like terrifying and so again you know that though that that's at the the hangar type area and no so going back to the west stage side of things the west side vendor villages and the office trailers were being hit really hard like windows bashed out of the offices the trailers were being flipped over cars uh, you know the vans the the that's where the majority of the looting really took place on the east side though the vendors had already closed up shop which deterred a lot of the crowd because even though it was just a tent flap people would just be like, eh, and kind of just go the other way but it redirected their attention to the next major target of the riots and that was the atms there's all sorts of news footage and stories of people breaking into ATMs, tearing them down, jumping on top of them, setting them on fire, trying desperately to open them. And I I doubt many of them got them open. It's a fucking ATM with like a safe in it. Mm -hmm. But the few that did, they found out that they were empty. And they, they had been empty for over a day due to the rise in prices that occurred during the previous three days, you know, of what was supposed mm -hmm. to be peace, love, and music and is now people yeah. jumping on top of ATMs like apes going absolutely fucking bonkers trying to tear down trailers and of course you know drumstock continuing this entire time and at any footage that you hear of the riots you hear drumstock happening and it's really the right. kind of most clear time because in the mystery tape that 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 we that we've always talked about and then even in the official woodstock 99 dvd vhs release there's a part where they focus on drumstock because it was right, such a thing right. you couldn't avoid it you know and you always yeah. see the guy with the cardboard sign that says like we've been drumming non-stop since midnight yeah. and you know infinity mm -hmm. to go infinity to go yeah. dude uh terrifying yeah. but that started <laughs> thursday night july 22nd right. and it ends in, in the early hours of July 26th, the Monday, people they, they literally went until they were completely broken up by police. And this is just like a, a clear-cut sample of drum stock happening during the riots. Where's mine? terrifying it's it's like you're in the, the jungle it's cannibal holocaust it's yeah it's lord, lord of, the of the flies it's it's, yeah, it's i mean the, the lord of the flies is the one like you really see that in so many mm -hmm. news articles about woodstock 99 right it's like it's societies because it's like it's starting to break down and then you give a little and you a little get a little more and then as it starts to slip and then finally it's like you've got enough elements here to just like this kind of anarchy is like now taking over, you know, briefly. Yeah. Uh, there, there was no it's, rules. It's winning. Yeah. And I, I mean, and, and we'll, we'll get to that. I mean, there's a lot of reasons as to how it got so bad. I mean, we, we know why it happened, but there's, there's a lot of reasons. But anyways, uh, the exact amount of money that was lost due to damages is unclear. The number is definitely in the tens of millions of dollars. I, I think earlier in the series we, we threw out a number. It, the, the more we've looked into it, there's no real way of knowing what was lost because some, you know, especially the vendors just kind of threw their hands up and were like, well, fuck it, you know, and, and left stuff mm -hmm. there. You know, we don't know how, many, how much people were insured for things, but it's definitely up in the tens of the millions. Uh, you know, some uninsured vendors, they, they didn't report their losses. Others who were insured did. And one vendor in particular, Russ Moore, he claimed to have lost $1.5 million due to the loss of product and also the 
complete destruction of his refrigerated truck. So when one of those trucks go boom, that's a huge chunk of change out of someone's pocket. Yeah. And if they're full of shit, you know, the, the profit margin taken into account, who knows how much people are really losing and it's, it's right. just not stopping. Actually though, that does remind me um, of something. It's a slight tangent, but it relates to the vendors. Cause actually uh, someone uh, messaged us about this and I went into this, but a, um, the, uh, the 12 tribes, which is kind of like this Christian started as like a Christian cult. And then they, in the seventies, and then they kind of attached themselves to like the deadhead scene in the eighties. And then like the fish jam scene in the nineties. Anyway, someone, uh, like one of our fans, they like messaged us said, listen to this podcast. And, um, it's about this woman who was born into the cult. And so, I mean, essentially, it's kind of like a large part of her story is her telling about, like, how shitty it was to be born into this, like, really crappy, like, Christian cult. But at one point, once they had, like, kind of gotten this formula figured out of, like, how to, like, attract all these, like, jam bands and kind of, like, lost, like, drugged out people, they would go to these big festivals and sell grilled cheese sandwiches. And so she was actually <laughs> at Woodstock 99, and she, and she was selling these grilled cheese sandwiches. She was, like, 16 years old. And she says that they made $100,000 that weekend. Yeah. So, I mean, if that's just one person, they left early, and so they didn't have that stuff. But, I mean, if that's just one person selling grilled cheese and they made that much money, you can imagine that there's, like, a lot of... A lot There's a lot of cash on hand for well, the and people that, that are still there. Right. And and that's what one of the I, – I can't remember if it was Colin or, or Brian, but uh, one of the survivors on the last episode, which we did three, I did those all, I think, in the same day. It was – it was a lot. That's why. Oh, it's you know. amazing. And also, folks, so you know, we, yeah. we, we got a couple emails. I know that the phone call thing is a little rough, uh, but, mm -hmm. you know, we're doing the best we can. I apologize. Right. But it's still a great episode. But but they, yeah, they were saying, you know, and they make a great point. This is before debit cards were really the go to way to pay. No one was using Venmo. No one had a square. So it was a cash right. business. You know, it was a cash economy at the at the festival. And so some of these vendors, yeah, I mean, I remember watching, uh, this is way back, watching an interview with some vendors that were selling like cargo shorts and summer clothes at Woodstock 99. And they left with, yeah, 70 grand in cash on them, you know? So when they see or, or they hear news or they hear someone's radio going off saying that, oh, they're tearing apart the tents and they're ripping open the boxes, these people are fearing for their lives. So most vendors yeah. stood, they stood guard at their booths until the state troopers or the National Guard were able to clear out the remainder of the the rioters in the audience and some vendors were families with small children that toured from festival to festival so it was like a family business and while trying right. to take their children off site many of them were sent back to their booths by police who were given strict orders to empty the grounds like just of the audience members and it was all through designated exits and it was all to keep staff and audience separate and it was all based on the kind of passes that you were in possession of whether it was artists vendor staff media audience vip uh but if you're a vendor yeah you were told to stay on site in in your area uh even if you had a small kid i mean you know brian on the last uh the last episode he was talking about that he tried to get a family out right. there had a, a little girl with them and they were told go back and there's people climbing right. on top yeah. of tents and setting fires and breaking open atms and you know, yeah it's, some it, of these vendors i mean that's their that's what they did is they just traveled festival to festival with their entire family like you said and just that's their living right there that's their livelihood yeah i mean and, you and, would, and also a, a festival like that could keep you going for the whole year and then it kind of has that somewhat of the misdirected and i mean we can get into some you know 
theories about this, but I mean, essentially it's kind of like, I'm mad at the vendors because they've been charging me the water $4, $6, $7 a weekend. But I mean, they had to do that because yes. they were getting screwed exactly. on it wasn't their fault. how much they had to buy the water for because they weren't allowed to bring their own stuff in. Right. So it's, yeah. it's bad. Yeah, it's definitely. Bad. Yeah. I mean, and that, that's, that's a hundred percent it. It's like, you know, if you're, you're not going to get like, where do you go to? And I mean, they were going to destroy anything on site. That's why the trailers and stuff, they didn't know necessarily what was inside. You know, they probably knew they were offices or what have you, but you know, it, it's not like they were all getting, you know, their torches and pick pitchforks and going to find, you know, laying in shares and now kill Kenny's laying share and kill Kenny's little, sanctuary you know and take them out yeah you know no yeah. it's like no i paid you the fucking seven dollars for a bottle of water i'm mad at you and so yeah the, the food vendors got it really bad they all pretty much abandoned ship from what i understand it was the independent vendors that actually sold their own goods that manned this manned the ship and kind of had to weather the storm um mm-hmm. but many of the vendors as well as woodstock 99 staff claimed that if fire trucks had the ability to enter the grounds earlier they might have had a fighting chance at stopping or at least slowing the growth of the riot uh there's conflicting mm-hmm. reports about that detail but it's widely believed that the promoters in charge believed that the fires would burn themselves out and everyone would return to their campsites or leave after the final act performed so they purposefully delayed the access of fire engines as to not cause a media shitstorm uh mm. which you know cuz it's like oh it's you know it's just kids being kids there's cuz at first there is just a couple but right. then it's it's more cuz like for instance when we see one during Megadeth and then we see a couple during Red Hot Chili Peppers mm-hmm. those are a mile apart from each other there's right, fires right. all over the grounds of this place you know if you were to see mm-hmm. it from above it would really look like some gnarly war you know type type stuff it would look like bombs went off right right yeah, and I mean, I also, and I think that, yeah, I mean, I think that the fact that it went on and no one was stopping it, I mean, because looking at the videos I've seen, especially these, like, the, the young drunk reporters, like, it's like, when you just have that, uh, and you're already maybe tipping on that mindset, it's like, it that is a very much an enabling, like, encouraging thing, like, when you see this fire and you see people jumping around it and dancing around it, yeah. it's kind of like, this is okay. This is okay for you to do this. And so like, well, when I saw rage, let's start another fire. I, I saw know. rage against the machine, uh, years ago. And it was at a venue that was just fucked. I mean, it was just dry, dead grass and dirt everywhere. It was like an amphitheater. So there was only like, you know, there was the pit and then everything else sucked. And, you know, you were mm-hmm. super up and it was blazing hot out. It was it was like my own personal Woodstock 99. Uh, it's actually a really crazy story. Uh, you know, in my youth uh, at a music festival. Yes, I partook in some substances and I was having a little trip. And then, you know, being this, you know, 17, 18 year old boy, I was I was very much in love with a girl that, you know, ended up not having any effect on my life. And I get a text that. She had cheated on me the night before and was breaking up with me. So I'm watching Cypress Hill on acid at this festival in like a hundred degree heat, <laughs> and then that gets laid on me, folks. And uh, oh, but anyways, 
Uh, Rage Against the Machine is playing later in the day, so I'm trying to compose myself so I can enjoy it. I finally get myself together. Wu-Tang Clan plays first. I'm like, great. Then Rage plays. But when Rage Against the Machine starts playing, people start tipping over the trash cans and setting everything on fire and dancing around the fires. And I'm freaking out now. And, like, <laughs> you know, so it's like, and but it was contained and no one did anything. But it's like, I mean, as a spectator, it's still scary. Forget where my mind was and everything. My buddies were all freaked out too. And it's, you, no one likes crazy people dancing around a fire at a concert. It's scary no matter right. what, as no matter how controlled it is. So for John share to, you know, for, or for anyone to delay that for saying, Oh no, it's, it's okay. We don't need to call them yet. I don't even think they alerted them mm-hmm. until it got to the yeah. point where they absolutely had to. Yeah. I mean, it makes you wonder like how much they believed in their ability to like, I don't know, prevent drugs from entering the grounds, you know? And that, again, you'd think like, you know, from the 60s, it's like people are on substances, so they might be more willing to do shit that they wouldn't do like if they were like at their job and sober. But you're talking about drinking. <laughs> yeah, people don't you're set fires about at their LSD. job, dude. <laughs> like, I mean, we're talking about real <laughs> ecstasy. Like, and I mean... I don't know. Real like, ecstasy. I mean, good, good call. Like, I mean, some meth. I don't know. Like, no, dude, so dude, you're talking yes. about some aggressive vibes. Well, you know, accelerated. I mean, the as far as the drugs go, from what we've heard, ecstasy, yes, was like kind of like that was more of like the LSD, like what LSD was at Woods at the original Woodstock. Ecstasy was at Woodstock '99. However, right. meth was really big because that was a newer drug. It had come out of right. it had come out of I mean, a truckers, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. and and right. it, but also you know speed and meth was always used in, in nightclubs, like in discos and stuff. And, you know, right. there were circuit parties happening, you know, the, the these kind of like gay raves that most of which, you know, the, the funds were used to support, you know, AIDS foundations and things like that. But they threw these underground parties and meth would fuel these parties. And so it became this party drug that and ended up yeah. becoming a mainstream thing and then ended up becoming right. this huge epidemic. And, so in 99, meth was something that you would just try offhand because it was yeah, like meth, a thing. People didn't know yet. Yeah. And I mean, and I guess that, I mean, shit, we might as well just talk about drugs a little more because that's the thing is like, you know, something like um, weed, like if you go to like a, like a reggae concert, everyone's smoking weed, right? Like that's not an escalating type of substance, right? You know, alcohol, obviously alcohol can lead, leads people to do like dumber shit than they normally would, right? And you have like a, you know, mind altering substance like mushrooms or LSD. And those drugs are very much more of like, uh, a wild card. They're not right. guaranteed. Like, say you take not, LSD it's not and you're at Woodstock 99. <laughs> no, you're like at Woodstock 99 or Woodstock 69 and you see Jimi Hendrix, right? And everyone's like hugging and kissing. You're on acid. You, you're you're going to like reflect that environment. You Maybe you want to like hug and kiss on someone, right? But it doesn't necessarily like, it might just, it's more of a reflector of like whatever is going on in your life and at the time. So, then you also add something like meth into that. And like, you're just kind of creating like a bunch of like little mini, like chemically unstable bomb people. Yeah. That Everyone's all sleep deprived too. And yeah. also the overlying thing of it all that we've always said from the start is it's Woodstock. I actually just right. read this quote 
I, I, I can't remember it exactly, but the gist of it, and it was from one of our emerging artists, Push Monkey, uh, who okay. we discussed. Uh, someone from Push Monkey was interviewed for a, a paper after everything had happened, and they had played Ozfest, and he was like, "Dude, there's a lot of drunk, crazy, rowdy motherfuckers at right at Ozfest, and this didn't happen there." He's like, mm-hmm. he's like, because yeah. there's a pit culture. He's like, there, there's, right. a, there's a, there's an understanding of the aggression. There's an understanding right. uh, of, of what you're getting into. Whereas here it was a total free for all in people's minds. And that's what we always said. Cause it's Woodstock. It's so Woodstock. you're not getting, you know, you, yeah, you're getting a lot of people that were there for the music. The majority of, of which were, because again, the amount of people rioting, it's, it's maybe, you know, up in the, up in the thousands for sure, but it's, it's nowhere near a majority. You know, a lot of mm-hmm. a lot of people left. A lot of people left before the thing was even over. You know, um, of course. But that that kind of plays into this because several audience members also told media outlets that if there had been another act, the likelihood of the riot would have been greatly decreased. The rave for Sunday night was canceled due to the condition of the crowd in the festival grounds. There was no surprise mega act, no rave, nowhere to disperse the immense amount of energy that was building in the crowd. So while prevention theories differ, there is no confusion when it came to the actual cause of the riot, right. though, you know, there, there, yeah, there, there's you know, the there's yeah. the reason why it was so severe, and the reason why it was so severe is yes, there there was a total letdown. It was you know it, it was a building of things. It was crowd mentality. But the reason why it started, uh, there's this great quote from an NPR reporter that that we found that we're gonna play for you. That kind of sums it up. And this is I, I believe was taken the the day after. This is the Monday after the Sunday where all this is going down. And it kind of just sums up the 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 riot aspect of it. Griffith's business in Technology Park is dirty, smoldering, and just plain stinks. GLDC officials say all of this trash, well, it was expected, but the still smoldering tractor trailers behind me one day after the event, that's a whole nother story. A backhoe was used to sift through these tractor trailers that were once full of vendors' merchandise and food. They went up in flames Sunday night with the bonfires. However, Rome Mayor Joe Griffo says no permanent base assets were damaged. Also the day after, contractors out getting estimates on the damage to their equipment. And that's what we've kind of always said. That's what everyone says. That's the tail of Woodstock 99 is that it the the price escalation directly correlates with the escalation of, you know, aggression in, in the crowd and, and the ultimate right. explosion. Um, but, you mm-hmm. know, that. It eventually it does end because the, the troopers came in and by all reports, when once they came in and the riot squads came in, everyone just was like, okay, that's it. You know, it, it wasn't worth, right. it wasn't worth fighting for. It, right. it, it, it was it wasn't, worth tearing This wasn't like down. a military. Yeah. Right. This wasn't like a, a coup. This wasn't like a, you know, a government <laughs> thing. This wasn't like these, these are still like, it's essentially this moment where these are like, like dopey, dumb kids that like are like going to go back home like the next weekend and like go to school and like, you know, skateboard in their suburban house, you know, right. sp- you know, they're going to go to the pool, whatever. They don't have like greater aspirations of being like political revolutionaries or gang members or like any of these other things. But it was just that too many it was the moment. things lined up. But terrible, terrible, awful things can happen in the moment that aren't so yeah. 
innocent. Yeah. And, you know, basically after being dispersed from the festival grounds, the riot spilled out into the tent city that had been taking shape during the four-day festival. It really was four days because of that Thursday pre-show. And the tent city mm-hmm. is huge, and it came all the way up to the fence. And at some points, people even had tents on the inside of the grounds. This is a massive thousands upon thousands of tents, you know, area here. Uh, so, you know, it's everyone's spilling back out into the tent city, going out into the parking lot. Now people are leaving, but there is several thefts being reported now. More fires, more vandalism, including off-site vandalism that spilled out into the town of Rome. Because now all these people that just got booted for doing all this crazy shit, they still want to do crazy shit. But also yeah. during all this time when everyone's there, people are going through each other's tents, stealing shit. Right. And what happened, you know, what the worst of all, of course was there was several sexual assaults that took place during this last period of time during Woodstock 99 that were pretty right. severe and, and we've we've covered a lot of these throughout the series unfortunately you know everything from gropes in a in a mosh pit to you know full on gang rape and uh we will get into that more on the second part because this has been a lot and we don't want to uh mm-hmm. we we don't want to right. we don't want to give you guys you know too too much to handle in one go and it, it's going to get pretty pretty gnarly we have some pretty pretty intense stuff for you on the next episode but to lighten it up right now we found out something pretty fun about Woodstock 99 <laughs> yes <laughs> there was a side stage uh off kind of one of the one of the campsite areas Called Kidstock, and Kidstock, Kid yeah, Kidstock. <laughs> Apparently, Michael Lang invited Kidstock to show up. They were a touring act. They performed at several festivals across the country, and carnivals, and state fairs. And they played children's music. And you know, it's like ukuleles and accordions and and things like that. Like and some kazoos, kazoos, got out the kazoos. Fun, fun <laughs> songs. And yeah. uh, I, one of the musicians that was actually in Kidstock that played at Woodstock 99 on the Kidstock stage was Dan Crow. And when I found out that Dan Crow played, I almost wanted to make a Legends episode. Because th- this guy, <laughs> he's won an Emmy for for his his. his is song just for fun and he's a three-time gold parents choice winner and he's also a cable ace nominated songwriter for his work on the disney channel he's written tons of songs for the disney channel and nickelodeon he also has done quote hundreds of songs for the winnie the pooh series and most notably he sang and composed i believe the song the, the theme song for the film milo and otis Yes, the, adventures the Adventures of Milo, Milo and Otis. Otis. The Adventures of Milo yeah. and Otis, I, I, I should say. Yeah, and, and so this is all, all the while. You know, we've been talking about Limp Bizkit and, you know, you know Cheryl Crow and Wyclef Jean and DMX and, you know, and Mickey Hart, and we haven't even mentioned Dan Crow. Not once. Kidstock. I mean, God, I wish that there was footage of that. That sounds really bizarre. And I mean, obviously, there wasn't a lot of children there, but we do know that there there were some. And I mean, that sounds like it would have been such a clear, awkward juxtaposition of like attempting because that ninety the the nineties like agro limp biscuit, and then like the sixties like 
hippie vibe like yeah like kids can party too like well, we're all well that's yeah, like, like that sounds um, real awkward that's like kind of there, there's like this like super deep subculture of of woodstock 99 like even deeper than drumstock and and the mud nazis where it's like the kids stock and like the the um the local talent stage that was in the parking mm-hmm. lot that, that we talked yeah. about on the uh, on the mystery tape part two episode, right, like right. you know, it's like Fritz's polka band played, dude. Yeah. Fritz's polka band though, I follow them on Instagram. I was gonna get one of the guys on the show, uh, but it kind of just fell through. They're like old guys, like old polka mm-hmm. band. They're they right. are the polka band from Home Alone. That's in the back of the you with John Candy, yeah. like you know, oh, you yeah. know, polka polka polka. Yeah, like polka, they're, polka. Yeah, that's yeah. them for real. And uh, they actually yeah. just lost. It's, it's very sad. I believe it was uh, two of their fans. They were like these fans are old, and uh, oh. but I guess they'd been going to Fritz's polka band shows forever. But anyways, yeah, I love that. There's Kidstock, there's Fritz's polka band. There's so much to Woodstock '99, and I just found out about Kidstock like yesterday. This is fr- this is really out there on the fringe, like, for <laughs> yeah, real. This is like it's getting yeah. bleak. It's it's yeah. it's getting bleak, but I thought that you folks might enjoy that because yeah. next week's episode is going to be more hard facts, more uh, kind of more intense it's stories. Uh, we got arrest reports for you. We got we, we, we got some good stuff, but uh, yeah, it's, it's it's a pretty wild ride. We are right in the thick of it now. So thank you guys mm-hmm. so much for, for listening and sticking around. If you want more exclusive content, you can sign up for our Patreon at patreon.com slash culture dumps. We just put up an episode about the Family Values 1998 tour uh, with Corn, Limp Bizkit, Rammstein, Orgy, Ice Cube. Uh, amazing stuff. It's also the history of the whole tour. So for those new metal heads uh, that, that listen, you can check that out. We also are putting one up about Watt Stacks, uh, kind of a change of pace for us so yeah be sure to check that out thank you for those that do subscribe and uh we're gonna be starting culture dumps uh the, the show you know probably with, with within the year so gear up for that and uh yeah so yeah but kid stock really really took it out of me all that enthusiasm i just put in i haven't been that excited in like a month uh well i, I love polka so i should yeah. go on record and i love polka yeah, Fritz's polka band. Yeah, yeah. So you got Fritz's, I got Kidstock. We got a lot out of this episode. Yeah. If you went to, worked at, or played Woodstock '99, please contact us at podcast ninety nine official at gmail or on Instagram at podcast ninety nine. Thanks, and we will see you at Woodstock. Uh, uh.